Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you are listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to explore the concept of agroecology and, in particular, regenerative agriculture. Our guest this week is Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. He is the executive director of Ecdysis Foundation and the CEO for Blue Dasher Farm. Dr. Lundgren's research and education programs are helping applied science evolve in ways that foster the evolution of a regenerative food system. One of his priorities is to re-envision how science is conducted to help fuel a revolution in regenerative agriculture. He regularly interacts with the public and farmers around the world regarding ecologically intensive farming and how diversity fuels the resilience and productivity of an agroecosystem and rural communities. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jonathan. It's really great to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me here. Absolutely. Why don't we just start with a little bit more about you? Tell us, how did you begin your journey as a scientist? Uh, I guess I'm, I, I got my degrees in uh, biology and in entomology, so I studied insects for a long time. And out of graduate school, I worked for the USDA as one of their research scientists um, here in South Dakota. I could drive from here over to my folks' place over in Minneapolis. We all have these metrics of success that we use, right? Mm -hmm. We all have these things to judge whether we're good at our jobs or a good person or whatever. And scientists have them too. And very few people had better stats than I had. I was, I knew the game pretty darn and I knew how to play it, but I could drive from here over to my folks' place and things weren't changing for the farmers, right? The, the, the climates were getting worse. The new, uh, rural communities were declining. The science that I was producing wasn't helping. I was doing it for the wrong reasons. And so I quit. And I started Blue Dasher Farm, and I started Ecdysis Foundation as a way of trying to help usher in an evolution to our food system, but also rethinking how we think about science and apply science in order to help exact change. I think that's such a great point. You're right. Many of us in science, I'm also guilty of this. I write lots of things that get published in scientific journals and it's the rare piece that actually gets translated into in some form of practice for the world. So I think that's a really, that's a really good point. So you mentioned that you're focusing on as a scientist on agroecology and and also entomology. What does all of that have to do with soil health and what does the health of our soil have to do with the health of our food systems? Uh, a great question and not one that I understood as a younger scientist, right? I was trained to focus on bugs. That was what I was I had my doctorate in. And so that was how you solve problems. But the reality is that insect pest problems and other issues that we're facing in our food system and beyond, that was never a bug problem. It was always a soil problem soils. And so we could never get ahead as far as the insect pest management was concerned. And it's very similar when you start thinking about many of the issues that we're facing as society right now, until we get to the root cause of why it is that these symptoms are developing, 
it's whack-a-mole problem solving, right? You whack down one problem and two more end up springing up someplace else and you never get ahead. So soils, how are they connected? Boy, healthy soils means healthy plants. Healthy soils means that the plants are able to get the fertility that they need. They're able to get the the provide nutrition to us who are eating those plants. It supports the life on our planet. And so biodiversity ends up becoming really important in this. And that biodiversity is what regulates pest populations and entomology problems, as well as disease and other things like that, weed problems. The connectivity of the natural world is really profound when you start digging a little deeper. Yeah, absolutely. I love this idea of how planetary health and human health are so tightly intertwined. We can't have one without the other. And you're really talking about very complex systems. Let's break down what does it mean to think about soil? Because it's not just about dirt, right? And minerals. And you mentioned insects. Not all insects are bad, right? Are there good insects both in the air and the soil? What does this system even look like, especially for us novices that are not experts in agriculture? For for me, I think the real eye-opener in this whole space was We like to focus on the problems, don't we? We put these blinders on so that we don't have to solve anything that's outside of our comfort zone. And pests, for every one pest species that we have, there's like 1,700 insect species that we need, we can't live without, that are an inherent part of a functioning ecosystem on this planet. And so when we ignore all of those, that other diversity in 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 order to try to solve the, that one problem species, it's to our detriment. What is soil? Oh my gosh, soil is life, right? Fundamentally, that's what it is. We, for many years, it was NPK, right? That was how we thought about the fertility of it and the function of soils. And now we understand that the biological component uh, is so much more important for us than we ever realized before when we were just focusing on the physical and the chemical properties of, of soil. And that life does things for us. That life sequesters carbon out of the atmosphere. That life provides the basis of biodiversity. That life detoxifies uh, pollutants within the environment. It helps with water relationships so that the soils can help us to reverse desertification. Yeah, so important. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it is about more than like NPK. Was it nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium? Yeah. Those are the back at the garden shop. Oh, um. so think about where we were at with nutrition, like human nutrition. I'll yeah. bet you could probably put a very similar surrogate, right? It was carbohydrates, proteins, and fats yeah. for a long time. And now what do we know about that? There are a lot of other things happening. (laughs) So I think what's exciting, there are two concepts that are exciting here to me, because when you talk about soil composition and attention to the biological matter within that composition, you're also, that's where you start to get into not only agroecology of really integrative agriculture within the environment, but also this concept of regenerative ag. Mm. And we've had some other episodes on the show talk a little bit about regenerative ag, but I think it would be good just to remind our listeners and for those that are new to the show, what does it mean to be engaged in regenerative agriculture? 
on both a large scale, but also as a small scale. Can I engage in regenerative agriculture in my little home garden? Is that something that's possible? Like, what does that all encompass? Mm, sure. Um, so what is regenerative ag? Uh, mm-hmm. Great question. And, and I think we, you know, for a long time when I'd get up on a stage to talk to farmers and they'd ask me that question, I would haul out the principles, right? And various stakeholders duke it out as far as what should be in that list of principles. But I think in general, it's stop tilling the soil. Leave that, that soil is your the basis of the function of an ecosystem. And if you disturb it, uniformly, it causes all kinds of problems. Number two is always cover the soil, living roots in the ground. That plant life is really fundamental for encouraging biodiversity and ecosystem function. Where does the energy for a farm come from? It doesn't come from a jug, right? It, it comes from the sun. And the only way you catch that is with plants and photosynthesis. Plant diversity, that's a third one that I like to haul out. And that's so important because the diversity and the abundance and the biomass of just about every other biological group that we know of ties and scales directly with how many plants are in a habitat. Animals, animals are so important in this equation because plants don't exist in a silo. They have to be interacting with other critters in that system. And that also gives farms an opportunity, right? For management and for having additional revenue streams to come off of that, their farming system. And then a fifth principle that I like to bring out is, is abandonment of synthetic chemicals. Because when farms start to adopt many of these other principles, they find that they just don't need to invest in all of these expensive chemicals and fertilizers and things like that. And that those different chemistries end up setting them back in terms of attaining what's possible within their system. That's the principles. That's what I haul out as I get up there and try to explain this to people. But We've created over the last two years as part of the Thousand Farms Initiative, the largest database of regenerative food systems in existence. We've quantified the full system of 750 farms in the last two years. And I can tell you that the experience uh, on such a continental scale of such a project has really changed my perception of what a regenerative system is. And I think we have to take a little bit of a step back from those principles, even a little bit further to get at the fundamental of what is regenerative. And so now I also ask farmers two questions that they have to say yes to if they're going to ever attain what's possible in a regenerative system. Do you grow food? Do you grow food for your family? Do you grow food for your community? Because those community and familial ties are so fundamental in attaining a regenerative philosophy of life, right? And then the second question is, have human feet touched every acre of your farm? Because right now, I was driving with one of my scientists, we stopped at a soybean field, and he pointed at the soybean field, which is not food, by the way. (laughs) That's not food. Thousands of acres, of usually a farm is, that has soybeans on it. And he pointed at this one particular one and he said, that field was tilled. 
It was sprayed with an herbicide. It was sprayed with a fungicide and an insecticide. They planted it. They sprayed it again. They flew on an insecticide later in the season. They harvested, they tilled it, and they sprayed it one more time. Human feet haven't touched that piece of ground. Yeah. Without that connection, we're dead in the water, right? Mm -hmm. That connection to the natural world is fundamentally human. And without it, regenerative agriculture cannot attain what's possible. Yeah, so many thoughts about this. When we think about what happened with the Green Revolution, which should not, I think, be called the Green Revolution, really, it was moving more and more towards this very technocratic, very artificial chemical herbicide, pesticide-based monocropping form of agriculture. It's interesting, I think, we see over and over in different systems within different areas of science, this pivot towards something that seems to be the most advanced scientifically. And a lot of the old ways are set aside as being, you know, not as advanced or not as valuable. But with regenerative ag, what really I'm hearing is this is a reclamation of many traditional systems of agriculture. Right? For sure. (laughs) It's the argument, of course, for mechanized agriculturists, it's only through this system can we feed the world. Mm. And I'd love your perspective on this. Can we achieve a a big enough regenerative ag ecosystem to feed the world? Or will there always need to be some level of mechanization? And and this is like a really difficult question. And and I'm sure many people have many different answers to this. Really? Okay. No, it's the only way that we're going to feed the world. The current system, the industrialized food system, number one, is not producing food. On 190 million acres of the United States right now, we're growing corn and soybeans. 190 million acres that we don't eat. Where is that all going? Is that all for like high fructose corn syrup? Is it going into animal feed? Like, why are we dedicating so much landmass to these monocrops that are Uh, It's being crammed into animals that are that evolved to eat grass, and we need to get them eating grass if those grasslands are going to be functional. And it's going into our cars. It's going into corn ethanol. Yes, Uh, which is not a particularly sustainable solution either. Uh, Very little. I think uh, I heard one number of 8% of the corn crop and 2% of the soybean crop is actually consumed by humans. Um, The rest is put someplace else. That's an awful lot of ground that we could feed the world with. And and it comes down to, it's not a matter of calories at this point. It's about a matter of distribution and where that food is and how to get it to where it needs to be. Yeah. Um, This is where Thousand Farms is a neat experience because we tested these systems. When I started this statement, I said, it's the only way we're going to feed the world, right? Regenerative. Kansas. I'm sorry if some of your listeners are in Kansas right now. Uh, the, The food system in Kansas has been industrialized for a long time. They've been tilling that soil for 150 years and they've destroyed it. The, the Ogallala Aquifer underneath Kansas that kept that agricultural system going is dry. We drained an aquifer. The rural communities that used to support them, they're going away. It's hot. 
It's dry. That's a test. 150 years that system lasted. We fly out to Vermont where we brought a team to study what they're doing. They've been farming the same piece of ground for 250 years. You can sink your soil probes a meter deep into black soil because they've been practicing regenerative agriculture for that entire time. That's a test. That's showing that for 250 years, the same piece of ground can feed a community. So I think that that's one of the nice things about taking a continental scale research project as we have, is that it reveals certain truths about our food system that wouldn't be evident by simply looking at a particular region or a particular crop system. That's incredible. And I, I want to elaborate a little bit more on what does this mean when you lose your soil? Does that mean you mentioned black soil and this nice, beautiful, thick layer of black soil? What is it? What does the soil look like when you've lost it? Or what does the ground look like? What's the difference between that plot in Vermont versus Canada or, or Kansas? Excuse me. Oh, it blows. That's where it goes. It blows away with the wind. Every one of the staff, we have about 35 on staff now, every one of them lived or drove through at least one dust storm as we were driving around the country this last year. It's the dirty 30s is happening again, right? It, it may wow. not be evident to a lot of people, but we've seen it. We're living through it right now. And what does it look like? There's no life, right? You pick it up. There's no smell to it. There's no... it. it, it it's, it either plates up and sticks together in, in, these, in, in, these, in these layers or it slips through your fingers. There's no roots to hold it together. There's no microbial exudates kind of clinging that, gluing that soil, the glomalins, in order to, to yeah. keep that stuck together into aggregates. And a good, healthy soil, you scoop it up and it looks like a cake batter. Yeah, yeah. I want to share something I experienced last winter. I worked out at a site. It's run by a company called Sekum in Egypt. So they have farms in the Nile Delta and also in the Western Desert. And what I found really incredible, especially in the Western Desert oases, is that they were taking sand. Think Sahara. It's just sand dunes. There's nothing there. There's some extreme plants, usually poisonous plants growing out there, but very and there's water underneath the desert, so you can pump it out. There's a huge amounts of water under the desert. What really impressed me is they're on a mission to reclaim that land to create soil. And it takes an incredible amount of composting, hmm. of regenerative ag practices, of integrating animals into this landscape and recycling the nutrients from the foods that they're growing and feeding to their staff. It's this beautifully intricate system, but it takes a lot of time. So I wanted to ask, like, where do you see in a place like where we have the Dust Bowls happening, just things are blowing around? Is there hope? Is there a way for us over time to recapture that land, to heal that land through these practices? And is that something that's already underway or are we still too far from that in the U.S.? So getting back to the Egypt and, and that whole area, that was the breadbasket of the world. That's how it started. And that the reason it isn't now is because they deteriorated their soils. They, they didn't respect that natural resource base. And, and so they, yeah, 
they practice very similar agricultural practices to what we're using worldwide at this point. And we're experiencing what they experienced several thousand years ago now. How fast can it change within one year? Dramatic improvements. It, and it depends, right? It depends on, on, on the current status, rainfall patterns, all of that, right? But the speed at which our food system can be used to solving these planetary scale problems exceeds anything that models predict because the models aren't based on being out there and seeing the complexity of the natural world and how it, the interplay of species with the physical and chemical environment of the soils. Yeah, is there hope? Absolutely. My gosh, we have seen across North America and around the planet right now, we have seen farmers do what science says can't be done. Um, often in spite of science, they are working on these or developing functional systems. It's why we changed the whole philosophy of how we conduct our research in order to try to capture that. Rather than imposing a treatment structure on, on, on farms that are leading this charge, we take a humbler approach and we say, you know what? The farmers are the experts. And we're here to learn from them as opposed to dictate how they should be functioning within their own system. Because when we try to impose our ideas of what a farm should be doing, we lose what's special about what that farmer has created. Carbon sequestration, regenerative agriculture, from year one of our data, Regenerative agriculture appears to have the ability to store most of the nation's carbon emissions. While improving the, the rural economies, increasing species the uh, sixfold in, in many of these systems, increasing the ability of soils to hold and capture water, reversing desertification, changing microclimates, we were in the Central Valley of California working in almond orchards. That was a wetland, and they turned it into a desert. And now the water's gone, right? It's gone. And, but these almond producers that are practicing regenerative practices, they're showing us that they can change their local climates. They're reducing water use to 30% without seeing any yield reductions. And at that level, it it's just becomes really evident that what's possible with our food system. It's not, it, yes, it's by mismanaging our food system, it's the reason for many of these planetary scale problems, including many human health issues that we're facing right now, chronic diseases and problems on, on a scale that we've never seen before. But it's also, it's also the solution. And we have a really good solution to it. That's, a, that's such a, you said something really, I think, fascinating. We, when we think about climate change, it's always something that's got a very negative light on it. If we're really messing things up. But you just mentioned even at the local scale, these small changes can help to kind of reshape climate, microclimates around farms. Is that something that, I, that you think that many farmers are aware of? Do you think that they have that information that they know? Are they aware of this ability to improve their systems through regenerative ag? Or, or do you think that 
we need more outreach and collaboration with farmers to help them get there. Certainly, we need to be communicating this in different ways mm-hmm. to more farmers. Uh, the, the bottom line, but it gets back to those fundamental two questions that I was getting at. I mean, if you unpack those questions, we need a lot more farmers. That's really the answer. If we can't farm 5,000 acres with one person because human feet can't, that means we need a lot more farmers out on the ground. And there is a whole generation of young farmers and that are wanting to return to the farm. McDyce's staff is incredible. It worked this punchy grassroots science organization based in a pole shed in eastern South Dakota. We attract the best people that I've ever worked with that give me so much hope. And they're an emblem of that hope, right? So there's a lot of things happening. People need to understand that there's things that they can do, right? Uh-huh. I've just been bombarded with problems all the time. And you just get saturated with that. There's a lot of people that want to do something. And regenerative ag is empowering in that sense. That's exciting. When I think about my childhood and going through school, I I grew up in a very rural part of Florida where we had a lot of agriculture based around kind of watermelons, oranges, like citrus, cattle. A lot the citrus is gone now because of greening disease. Again, a horrible monocropping practice that led to destruction of a major industry in Florida. But when I was growing up, becoming a farmer was something that like was really respected and was really something that a lot of people grew into within the community through FFA and fairs and raising animals and selling them as part of this kind of childhood education thing. And when I think today about like this message of the hope and the future and the excitement around farming. I don't know that young people are getting the same messaging they did even back in the 1980s. And so if you had a message to share with our listeners, we have a lot of young people that listen, a lot of folks in high school, a lot of people in college, like what would you tell them about farming as a potential career direction? Oh, absolutely. It's One of the most fundamentally human practices is to connect with the natural world and our communities and our food. And we've displaced that. And it's led to a lot of problems that were unforeseen. We thought we could better living through chemistry became our motto, didn't it? And and that was a lie, unfortunately. It, It didn't replace what it means to connect with animals and plants out in the real world. And farming gives you that opportunity on a spiritual level, right? I am a farmer. That was one of the fundamental things that we had to switch. When I quit USDA, I said, the scientists need to be farmers. If we're gonna get us, if we're gonna connect with this problem, that's step one. And that changed everything, right? That changed the questions we asked, that changes how we ask them. And the dirt under our fingernails and the calluses on our hands as a result of that, have really opened a lot of doors and new perspectives on things that would not have been possible if I had stayed within the current scientific infrastructure. And I would encourage the young people, I'm not saying it's an easy life, but it is the fullest of lives that I've ever seen or experienced. And, and yep, it's one worth living. That's amazing. Getting back to the science, I had a question about regenerative ag. So a lot of times regenerative agriculture is 
promoted for its ability to improve nutrient density mm. in these crops. And can you tell us a little bit about what is the evidence for that? And what, what additional evidence is needed when it comes to the connections between the way we farm and the, the nutrient value of our foods? As of right now, there's a lot of anecdotal success stories associated with regenerative ag. It's going to play a role in climate mitigation. It's going to increase nutrient density. It's going to reverse species loss, reverse desertification. There isn't a lot of data yet. That's one of the reasons why we decided to pursue this as aggressively as we have is that there's a lot of momentum in this regenerative space. And I've seen it myself. And I think that there is something to it. But there's a real chasm of data uh, that needs to be generated in order to support this so that people that aren't living it day to day, that aren't necessarily as connected to the problems as they'd like to say they are, can use that data to get a better perspective that's a, that's a little more reliable. Nutrient density is one of those things that kind of comes up time and again. I think that so we are quantifying a lot of nutrients and phytochemicals of yield products and correlating those back to management and the regenerative outcomes, right, of, of better soils, better plants, better water, better life on these farms. But the nutrient world, I dare say, needs to take a step back and figure out what a nutritious food is because... I can tell you magnesium goes up, but sodium goes down and, and I don't know, some amino acids might be more present in a particular food as a result of management. Is that good? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Is that what we're after? Yeah. So there's a better crossover between nutrition and these kind of Man land management practices. I, I get that. So you can look at composition, but tying that to health is key. And yeah, I, I know you're so. also doing a lot of work with the periodic table of food initiative. Yeah. And I think one of their big foci is around developing a better understanding of not just those, how many protein, carbohydrates, sugars, et cetera, are in these crops, but actually what's going on with the phytochemical content as well. And how does that tie to health? So can you tell us a little bit about that and your, your work with the PTFI and how that ties into your research and, and practice around regenerative ag? Absolutely. They've been a, a wonderful collaborator with us. They're trying to define the nutrient quantities of different nutrients and phytochemicals and, and foods all over the world. And working with us, we can provide the metadata for how those foods were produced to see whether or not we can actually help to use food as medicine and increase it, the resilience of society using our food and how we get there. So it's a wonderful partnership that's going to be a, an amazing game changer. We'll be able to link food quality to, to how many bugs are in a field, to profit, to soil carbon, to how fast does the water go in, and how many microbes are in that soil. These, all of these different elements end up influencing that nutrition. And we're going to be able to understand that really for the first time, just how complicated that that is, but also I have a feeling it's going to be a lot simpler than we ever realized by the time we're all figuring it out after all the data is rolled in. 
it's going to be reduced ecosystem disturbance, increased biodiversity. Ultimately, those seem like truths, increased community, increased family. And then feet on the ground, feet on the fields. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a lot of currencies that we try to chase right now. Economics mm-hmm. is the one that seems profit, right? Money. What regenerative farmers have showed me and even life in my own life with Christina and our kids. And it's, there's a lot more valuable currencies than money that are out there. And I think that we need to understand that and nutrition and the health of our, of, of our communities is really a fundamental one. And it's a good motivator for trying to make the right decisions. That's beautifully said. I think that's the perfect way to wind up um, with this episode. John, where can we find more information about the Ecdysis Foundation and your other work? Is there a website you can direct us to? Yeah, absolutely. Just go to our website, um, www ecdysis.bio and that's e-c-d-y-s-i-s so and b-i-o we're on facebook we're all over social media youtube google my name or ecdysis's name and something's gonna come up hopefully it's good stuff (laughs) amazing thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing all this really exciting work around regenerative ag i really enjoyed learning more about it yeah thanks for having it and giving time to it I, i think Yep, this is the future. Yeah. Okay, foodies, thanks so much for listening. If you want to check out this and all of our other episodes, just head over to foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find the video version of this episode on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel. We've also got lots of fun gear and swag, coffee cups, totes, t-shirts, lots of fun stuff at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. I also want to send a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for bringing you a great show each and every week. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time. This Foodie Pharmacology podcast is part of a special series co-designed with the Periodic Table of Food Initiative, also known as the PTFI. The views and opinions in this podcast are those of the presenters and represent the synthesis of science. The PTFI is a program of RF Catalytic Capital managed by a collaborative team at the American Heart Association and the Alliance of Bioversity, CIAT, that seeks to advance our fundamental understanding of food composition by providing tools, data, and training to scientists across the globe so they can better characterize the quality of the world's edible biodiversity. The PTFI's ultimate goal is to advance data-driven solutions in the food sector for the health of people and the planet. Funding for the PTFI is provided by the Rockefeller Foundation, the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research, C-Rave Foundation, Fourfold Foundation, and Atria Health Collaborative. 